Hey everybody, this is Rick Overton and you are listening to Overview on the Sideshow Network and iTunes. And uh, I have the pleasure of interviewing a guest who has just been an enormous help to me piecing together a script I am trying to sell right now and I ran into a bunch of brick walls and she just smashed through them like she was juggernaut. Bam! Because <laughs> that's her specialty. She uh, is... Uh, uh, the director of the writing program On the Page, <clears throat> host of the popular On the Page podcast, and author of The Coffee Break Screenwriter. As a teacher, <clears throat> Pilar Alessandra has traveled the world teaching in London, Dublin, Vietnam, Portugal, and will be teaching in Beijing this April. She's trained writers at ABC, Disney, CBS, Nickelodeon, and UCLA. Many of her students have gone on to write for TV, sell features and pitches, and win prestigious contests such as the Nicole Fellowship. Pilar was dubbed the script whisperer by Script Magazine and was one of LA Weekly's top 100 people. For more about Pilar, go to www.onthepage.tv. And so I want to thank... Pilar Alessandra for being on Overview. Thank you so much, Rick. And thank you, Pat Francis, her wonderful husband, for recording all this and doing the engineering. No problem. You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so I, I want to ask you what you see as the most common missing thing with, with when you see writing submitted, what is the thing you see that needed the work the most? And it's the most often you see it. Uh, the, the missing thing is um, risk. Uh, that that these days, when people have read so many books and they've gone to so many sites and they've they've been students of of film, you know, just through watching or TV, um, sometimes they write to formula. They don't even mean to do it, and they think they're writing, mm-hmm. they're doing what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. and yes, it's just fine. But what's missing is risk. What's missing is a decision to break a rule creatively or come up with something completely unique or give me a line I didn't expect before or, you know, take me down a road that, that was surprising. Mm. Risk. That's, that's what's missing. Now, uh, where does risk dance Where's the dance floor for risk <clears throat> and uh, structure? Well, you know, it, it's, we were talking about structure on the, the mm-hmm. podcast where, where, when you were a guest on my podcast. And yes. the idea, I liked what you said about, you know, it's, it's a, sort of a, a painting frame, right? Mm-hmm. But how you paint within that frame is completely up to you. But you need, you know, it can't splatter paint all over <laughs> everything. And, you know, here you go. Oh, it's on the table in the chair. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that's part of it too. No, it's like we need to see see the big picture that's the structure right. you know we need to know we're getting from this point to that point but within it do whatever the heck you want you know but have a story in mind the story itself is the structure and believability mm. I mean, what they said to each other i gotta think as an actor i don't know how i would say that to another person and look like a real thing <laughs> i get what the joke is but it doesn't have anything to do with who this guy is well but you, you're saying two different things right so one is Believability, and then one is authenticity to that character. Now, mm. if you, if that character right. has been written in a way with full commitment to the character, that character can say what that character would say, and it's believable for that character, mm. even if you've never met that character in real life. Like one of my favorite films um, 
this year is uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal uh, movie. <laughs> no, okay. My favorite film is the one I get. Thank God, my thank you. thank you, thank God, my husband is here um, for that <laughs> half of my brain. Yeah, my favorite film that I can't remember the title of. So Nightcrawler. Okay, so Nightcrawler, the lead in that. Okay, that character isn't somebody I've never met before, and he speaks a language I don't know, and he has a philosophy I think is nuts. But you, he, the the writing of with that character is so committed to who that character is. He says those things and you believe it because that character lives that experience. That's believable. It doesn't have to be somebody you know. Right, like in The Fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, all of our favorite characters, right? They, they, they are unique. They're people we've never seen sometimes. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> but you believe it. You know someone, you can see an archetype sometimes in there. You know? Sometimes. And sometimes there's no archetype at all. It's just completely out of the blue, unique thing. Right, but it is consistent. That person is, does not go off of his philosophy. He creates the language, and we see him applying that language to everything he does, and it becomes where if he went off of that language, now it's not believable. If you start right. talking like you and me, we go, uh, wait, I don't believe it anymore. Right. He needs to talk like he talks. Right. And then in comedy, it's even harder because you are faced with the temptation to just find a joke that would work regardless of whether that is true to the person or not. And you know the difference because you let comedy inform you in your teaching a lot and in your notes. Yeah. You know, I, I <laughs> so, you know, other girls, I guess, would sneak out to concerts and I would go see comedy like in the 80s <laughs> right, you know right, right. I, there was some great comedy going on <laughs> and uh you know i had a crush on a comedian sorry pat and i, I ended up marrying a comedian you know <laughs> you had a crush on this <laughs> comedian yeah, yeah, you could have ended it there you know we could cut the scene right I there i didn't have a crush <laughs> on that comedian you know you and i wouldn't be married like that's you know, that's how it goes it had to go in that order yeah. yeah so so but one thing um so i have enormous respect for the writing that it takes for comedy and how a good joke is phrased. And also, you know, the earnestness that certain characters have that ends up being funny because they're so earnest when you don't play to the joke. But one thing that no, I don't know even if Pat knows this, my, the way I teach, I, th I think I, I'm lucky. I get people in my classes, and I think that I give good class. Okay, you I absolutely think, uh, I, do. I think it's you know it's it's entertaining. You're going to have a fun time. Your eyes are going to be on me by the end. You will have learned something, but you you will have had a good day. And I learned that because I got a moving violation by going through a stop sign. I was working as a reader at DreamWorks. I went through a stop sign. And in those days, if you wanted to get the, the points off of your insurance, you went to comedy driving, comedy driving right? school. You went to driving school, right? <laughs> you had to go in person to driving school. You couldn't do it online. That, that wasn't around. It was you know? an option yet. Exactly. So you went to driving school. And so I went to comedy driving school because I was a comedy fan. It was through the improv. Yep. And I went there, and I was there all day, yep. and I realized that this guy was not doing stand-up. <laughs> he was just teaching in a really entertaining way. So he would use storytelling. He would work with the crowd. He would break people into groups and bring it back to some kind of entertainment. He was just interesting. So I stole <laughs> my teaching style from comedy from comedy driving school. 
that was a huge influence on how I teach. So, <laughs> so people are always like, you know, who'd you learn from? The masters, McKee, Sid Field? And I'm like, comedy driving school. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it works. Whatever it works, because it cuts to the chase, you know. Thank you. And that's Thank the you. whole point is, uh, well, got to get an efficient way to pare things down and not have the Sophie's Choice torture of, oh, I'm going to give away a precious thing. It's just, it's, you know, just right. Right. And if you ever get on staff of a show and you watch the way they cut out things you, you submitted, you get a little less sensitive about losing a joke, a one joke. Oh, God, when you're on staff, you lose jokes by droves. And it's like a fishing net. Just everything falls out the side. Isn't know? comedy always, too, about sort of chipping away and chipping away and chipping away until you have delivered the joke with the least amount of words in a way like you can hit it you know it's especially stand-up i think is you know that idea that if you give a really long setup by the time you've got to the punchline sometimes that punchline is not worth it considering how long the setup is yeah. so you have to have exactly the right rhythm right. in order to to hit them and it's the same thing with pages you've got to chip away and chip away and chip away mm. until you get that right rhythm mm. as far as as comedy goes right all your favorite films they don't i mean you, you when it's not your favorite film it's because they didn't do that yes yeah and you just sit there going wow well, all right i think there was funny in there somewhere but i'm bored oh my god i i am heartbroken about dumb and dumber i i even was I, I love those guys, and I love the first film. And I was cringing through this film the way they just held the camera in place and waited too long on a cut. And oh, everything. no. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, I go in with this sort of <clears throat> family attachment to certain things, and then to see the weird second pass on it, the curse of the sequel or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> and how did they let that all slip? Who sat in a screening and went, ah, just release it? Oh, boy. Who does that? It's, who are they asking? They, they, they can't see that those jokes aren't working this, at this speed and at pace. And the trailer these was guys, really funny. The trailer so, was funny. Because it was cut like a trailer, right? Because it was cut guys. with that kind of quick, no, you know, no. that quick pace. But if it was missing from the movie, forget oh, it. Oh, I was just so sad about it. You know, I'm not, I don't go to, to hate a movie ever. Some people, they go, they can't wait to hate it. Right, no, right. Because it's, it's a ton of work. Everybody busted their butt to make this thing happen. Even when it didn't work, it was everyone did everything they thought they could. Sure, sure. Did you end up seeing that, Pat? I didn't. I didn't see it. Uh, yeah, but that's true. They, they always say that it, it's just as much hard work to make a bad movie as it is to make a good movie. Yeah, so. right, right, exactly. But uh, do you think because it's been, it's been 20 years, right? Are they trying to appeal to what, what kids are used to now instead of doing it the old way i don't know i don't know that didn't work they were trying to appeal to a new pace a new timing a new kind of cutting yeah mm, maybe maybe but i did it wasn't the experiment wasn't the right one but over over the mm. over the christmas break i uh, i watched uh a movie from 1982 <laughs> that i hadn't seen in a long time tootsie and it is perfect it's a perfect film. it is so perfect i was like loving it i kept running it to her and saying Listen to what they did here. This is absolutely on the spot perfect. Hey, so, guys, let's list some perfect films that we did. <laughs> let's, let's play perfect film. Perfect film. Oh, no. Oh, no. Pat, thanks a lot. I know. You know this is Rick's podcast, right? I do. Let's just open on this. He was just I talking about a comedy movie, I so one. I wanted to throw in how good Tootsie still Galaxy Quest. Perfect film. Perfect comedy. One of the perfect comedies. Oh, no. Oh, Groundhog no. Day. Perfect film. Perfect film. Can we go film and not, and does it, do they all have to be comedies? No. Okay. No, any kind of perfect film. All right. Uh, for and me, then, on then a, say why. 
Oh, and say why. Okay, so on a, 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 a Paper Moon for me is still a perfect film. Every time I watch it, I'm like, it, it does everything that it wanted to do Tatum as far O'Neill. as, yeah, as far as a, a, a daughter, father experience, and we've seen many of those on screen, as far as um, sort of that get to know you experience, that um, a mission, a, mm-hmm. a big con, mm-hmm. you know, and then a third act that I felt was sort of raw and true and yet, you know, gave you some hope. So I, for me, Paper Moon, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. That was great reasons. And the story <laughs> moved in a, in a way it was linear and you could follow it. Exactly, it was, exactly. It was easier to, to hang in there. It was a big influence on me when I, I watched it when I was Tatum O'Neill's age, you know, wow. and I was like, there's that scrappy girl doing that scrappy stuff, you know, so, but over the years, I've rewatched it and rewatched it. And I don't rewatch mm. a lot of things and that, to me, it holds up. I got a funnel theory about it, and it applies to improv too. When someone goes, gives you too many things to do in an improv, mm. the funnel you got, they get the wide end of the funnel, and everything jams down to this tiny little rivulet of what you can do about it because you're just a bellhop at that point, mm-hmm. just dragging their crap all through the scene. There's no room for you to invent anything. You just have to say what they told you to do, and by the time the scene's over, you didn't even get to the third one. Uh, and so the funnel theory is give a simple thing to do and let it fan out the other way. Give the other person the wide end of the funnel so they can explore outward what to be done about one thing. You know, it's, it's interesting it, with, with feature. You know, um, if it's a high concept movie, like a big idea, right? You usually want to take this really big idea and going with what you talked about, hang it on a simple structure mm-hmm. so that if you're going with something completely unique we've never experienced before, but there's a simple structure where you so go like, oh, I understand the want and need. This is a want and need I have, even though somebody's going to fly to the moon to do it. Yeah, right. You know? Okay, so that's high concept, simple structure. With right. dramatic films that are just our everyday life, let's say it's a movie about dysfunctional family family at Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. then what you tend to do is you have a complex structure because it, the whole premise is familiar. We know Thanksgiving. We know dysfunctional families, That's unfortunately. That's the thin part, the simple part. Exactly. And it fans out into human behavior. Right. So that's yeah. when we play with structure because then it's like, you know what? Let's tell this backwards. Or let's flash back to that person's reality. And that's when you start messing. You risk. Yeah, exactly. So there's always some element of risk. So either the, the idea is the risk, but you hang it on something simple. Or it's the, the way that you're telling the story that's the risk because the story outwardly would seem simple. But like you said, when you, if there's a collision of the two, it's a huge mess. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like trying to put two positive bar ends or two negative bar ends together a magnet. Just, uh, exactly. They don't even want to touch. Right, right, right. And then you have just... An, it doesn't, the conflict looks like it's the wrong kind of conflict in the film. It's the conflict between the writer and his, you know... Exactly. And it's and a lot director. of what I do as a consultant is a lot of times writers get bored with their own stuff mm-hmm. or they think this isn't special enough. So then they throw in this and then they throw in that and they throw in this. And I'm just like, that first idea you had was so good and you didn't make good on it. You, you keep pulling me away from your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Stop it. You know, <laughs> you know, you've got four amazing movies here. Could, could I see one of them? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and that's a lot of what any you know, person in my business does is sometimes just finds the focus. It's not the idea after a certain point. Now you got to get back to the people living in the idea. Exactly. Let's spend some time with them. What do they think about all this? What would, what would they do now with this idea? How is it messing with their relationships? How is it changing their lives? And 
where do you see today's writing now that the networks are not what we used to think networks were? They're on Amazon and Netflix, and they have different length shows, different kind of content. Uh, House of Cards sort of moves in a sort of dreamy fashion. I think it's super cool, don't you? I think it's it, that is a very risky show. If you would apply the Alessandrian theory to it, it would be they took a lot of risk with the way they they show it. But you know what? What's familiar about it? Okay, the world of politics. Oh, totally. A guy who's power hungry, <laughs> the woman behind the power, yeah. right? All those those tropes that we go, okay, I know that, and then they play with it, right? <laughs> they they Macbeth yeah. it up, right? <laughs> um, you know, but it's not it's it's not like they're throwing all these different ideas out. They're saying, look, here's this one climb to power. Let's watch it. That's the structure. Mm. And then within that structure, they're messing with how he's going to get that power. That's the risk. So it's, it, you know, it, it's there. It, I think it's very Alessandrian. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This Alessandrian thing is uh, hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the, or the Alessandrian library. Oh, God. Uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, the 21st century, it, for a while it was looking like it was just going to be making stupid, and then it backlashed, and now smart and inventive and interesting is the, the, the rubber band snapping back the other way from the moronic stuff we were starting to make in the beginning of the millennium. It's bouncing out wonderfully, I think. I think, and I think always, there's a height of the form in some ways. Look, we always, you know, you know, we were always sort of putting down the new art, like, oh gosh, you know, it'll never be like it was. Fine. It's yeah. something new. It's something, it's something riskier, deeper, or darker. Fine. You know, eventually it always does find its new voice. Yeah, like Jeff you know? Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Exactly. And, and, and art finds a way, even in the crappy commerce reality world. Right. Which was what we were getting poisoned with a few years ago. And now they're dumping that stuff left and right. People have suddenly snapped and have come to really hate it. Sure, sure. And they can, they, there's they want that the writer freedom. again. Yeah, there's a freedom because there are so many different forms now. Like you said, it, it can be streaming, it can be short form, it yeah. could be on the web. Because writers feel like, well, I could maybe do anything I want, they'll try it out, you know? And some of it, not all of it works, yeah. but the stuff that does work is brand new. Yeah, the, who'd have thought I'm writing a webisode? Of something. That's a new word. Yeah, it's, and cool. it's a new way to do it, and you still have to have a structure, a tease, an out, a second act to it of some sort, even though it's a very short playlet. And even, and even with that, now we have so much of that, that quality has to rise to the top. You know, it's mm -hmm. still the best storytelling that rises to the top. So it's not just, yeah, you know, I'm going to do this because it's risky and edgy and new. It's like, well, not that new anymore, right? <laughs> so, so now it's got to be, and, and it's the best because it's got to compete with so many thousands of other projects that are out there. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, has the European and UK influence 
come across and shown its effect in our writing at all. I think so. Don't you? I do too. I mean, like those British series that we love so much and that appreciation of a slow boil, (laughs) you know, I, I, you know, going back to house of cards, there was, there was that. That was what I was thinking. Right. Um, and I, you know, it's so funny though, because when I teach in London, they want to know about American projects. Mm. And when I teach out here, they're trying to do six part series, you know, in the British form. And it's just like, (laughs) Good. I'm glad we're all influencing each other, yeah, but right. you know, you don't have to become the other. It's you know, just take take what works, you know, and then you've also got your own style. Yeah, you know, don't have to do a faulty tower run. Right. Exactly. Though I love it just the way it is. <laughs> I don't know what season eight of Faulty Towers would have been like, you know, but it just sure was great for the amount they did. <laughs> and uh, features now. Do you think features will go through a big shakeup? In structure after the award season, which looks like Birdman's going to be taking a little bit of tin home, you know. Well, you know, I'm finally, I was saying this to Pat, I am finally excited about movies again. Because I was always the, the biggest champion because I came out of, my experience was in movies, I taught movies, I have a great believer in movies. But even I started to lose my faith, mm. you know, if there'd be that handful of, of little movies that kind of, you know, that were better than everything else around award season. But this year, it really feels so exciting. If you look at the, the movies on the original screenplay list, they are original you know, there's so many incredible yeah, right. things that are happening right now. So I do think that this is an interesting time that independent minded mm-hmm. movies and they sometimes they have studio money, but the independent minded movies are getting a lot of attention and audiences eyes on them and that the movies that we always assume will make money aren't making the money that they want to. So right. it's forcing, finally forcing the feature people to go, well, what's that about? What, yeah. what, people want a good story or characters or something? Okay, mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> right. well, it's like the difference between Sphere and Wag the Dog. And I they just, while there was downtime on Sphere, they went and shot Wag the Dog while they were waiting for like them to get back and shooting on the other set. I didn't know that. Yeah, they just took the extra money they didn't, have, didn't use on Sphere. Because those were both Barry Levinson films. Barry Levinson yep. just shot the other film, and the other film, the tiny one, was the hit. Well, and, and one thing that, that writers and do need to know because sometimes I, then I get like a bunch of you know people going, ah, movie industry sucks and everybody, nobody, everybody hates me. I'm going to go home. <laughs> um, is, is also to remember that those independent feature, features can't really live without studio money sometimes. So the studios, the big tentpole movies still have to support them, the studios, so that this, there's that trickle down yeah. uh, yeah. thing. And there's probably there's there are new ways of doing this that are being invented all the time, especially now. But there's still that old model that is in place right now, and and uh, you gotta just sort of support movies in general. You know, you mm-hmm. gotta see the the little ones, and you gotta see the big ones. See the big ones. Yeah, you gotta be a fan. I think. What got you into it? What got me into it? Um, I. Well, fear of a real job, of course, because <laughs> that's my God. No, um, I was uh, I was selling sandwiches. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was out here. Um, I was yeah. I was sort of overeducated and underemployed. I was selling sandwiches out of a of a cart, and a friend of mine from school knew that I loved writing research papers. Um, I should say literary analysis. I loved literary analysis in college. And she said, oh, I work for this, this independent production company. Can I throw a script at you a week? 
you know, and I was like, sure, that sounds like fun. And so I, <laughs> I started reading this script a week and, uh, and then somebody was like, Hey, stupid, you can get paid for that. And I was like, what really? That could be a, that could be a job, right? A reader. So I took my samples over to, I was like, oh, I know I'll work for Steven Spielberg. I mean, it really, really <laughs> helps to be completely stupid and in your twenties, right? I'm like, I'll work for, that's a good place. I like, I like his movies, right? So I submitted and it turned out that two things. One was the place I'd been working for for free was um, for a company called Cineville that did Alison Anders movies. And Alison Anders was a hip director at the time. Uh, she did Mi Vida Loca and Gas Food Lodging. And um, so they were very interested in that particular kind of voice. And it turned out that my coverages weren't half bad because of all that literary analysis I did in college. Uh, good, perfect. So they hired me and I learned on the job. It was still Amblin at the time. And uh, when it became DreamWorks, I'd been there long enough that I was sort of on, uh, you know, doing some notes on, on some of their bigger projects, but also still fielding the material. And I'd also started doing a little teaching because people would say, how do I become a script reader? And I started teaching this little class out of my living room and they were getting jobs. So I started, I took that class to UCLA. I found out I loved teaching. And, uh, and then I started teaching screenwriting. And somewhere in there was comedy driving school. So <laughs> when I opened my studio in 2001, it was pretty much because of my husband saying, well, well we were going we to have a baby. Right, and we had to make more money, and uh, my husband was like, "Hey, you know, you have people who like what you do. You do it well. Why don't you just start your own business?" And so we took took a, a risk, and this is where we are now. <laughs> it worked. It worked <laughs> so far. Yeah, that's it. There, we will still have scripts <laughs> yes. that need fixing. That need fixing, and also need inventing. It's I, the the teaching part of it is is even more fun than the consulting part for me. Yeah. So, what's uh, what? What kind of a classroom? How many people in the UCLA class? Well, I don't teach at UCLA anymore. It's all through on the page. It's all through my own studio and here. And the seminars here. Yeah. So you can get in about how many folks can you get? Um, in usually, there's about 25 people in the six-week mm. classes, and uh, I have a first draft class that starts you off from scratch. I have a rewrite class that helps you with rewrite techniques that make it better, and a couple of specialty classes here and there, like TV, pitching, things like that. Now, pitching is interesting. Mm. It's its own separate game. Yeah. With so much... I, we won't go into super detail, because that's what you come to the class for. Oh, it's, that's all right. I don't care. Uh, but I do want to just get an essence of what it is that they'll learn when they're working on pitching, so well, that they'll know that this is something they got to sign up for. It, it's funny. I, I came to teaching pitching really as a survival mechanism in my own classes because I would say tell me about your script and then it would be the next day and that writer would still be talking about his script so I had to come up with some kind of structure again for them to tell their stories to me and to the class in a concise entertaining manner that got the big idea across the main characters, the plot line, and then moved you on. And that became a template that people would use in a short pitch in a studio office or when they bumped into the right producer. It turned out to be a great elevator pitch template. Grab them right there. Yeah. And so that's, that's sort of the basis of, of what I use for class. Um, but, but I will say the biggest tip is get your idea out right away. Get the log line up front 
Because by the time you're done pitching the nuances and the characters and all this, the executive has come up with his or her own story <laughs> in their head. Why, but by the time you land on the story, they're like, oh, I thought it was something else. So I'm almost yeah. saying don't let them use their imagination. Tell them what it is and then back it up with the rest. Then go back and say why. Exactly. Oh, it's yeah. interesting. You open with the punchline. Yes, I guess you do. And then come in with the setup. I guess you do. I think it's sort of like maybe it's more like journalism, like you know, don't bury your lead. Right? The headline has to say what the story's about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, in the marketplace right now, what do you see selling the most? Well, I, that's hard for me to say. I am seeing, because it's not, because I, I, I prefer the companies of the company of writers. So I'm not sort of, you know, hobnobbing with the agents and hanging with the development executives and all that stuff. There's a, there's a, a reason I do what I do. And it's sort of, I, so I don't have to go over there your own, in, in your own world. Yes. But what I am seeing, uh, people respond to with my own writers is a more character driven script that when they have gone inside of a character and really explored relationships, they're getting more attention than, the writers that used to get the attention that was all about, I got a big idea, you know, it's about five guys and they can fly and, (laughs) you know, and, uh, and they specialize in saving Girl Scouts. You know, it's like, that's, I think people were burned a little bit in the nineties with a big high concept idea that then didn't have the right execution. Yeah. Yeah, So, so now there, it's all about the execution. And what do you see missing from characters mostly? Missing from characters. When you um, read every script, uh, the, the average thing you always see that's missing, I'm sure women are weak. They always write weak women. It's a guy who writes weak well, women. You know what? I, I, that's a common you know, one. But, but, then, but then again, like, then the reverse of that is, is it a strong woman who's just like you know, a ball buster just, for, for, just to show that she's strong? I'm looking for a human woman. I'm looking for a flawed woman. There's so many of you guys out there. There's all shades of you out there. Guys, you know, all of your flaws and your mistakes and your messiness, and that's what makes you so interesting. So I'm looking more now for a flawed, uh, messy female character, not so much somebody who has to be strong, but who's interesting. Well, that's what I'd like. It's the same difference to me between uh, Clouseau and Mordecai. Mm. When you Mordecai were is acting like he's perfect. And when he kicks you in the head and knocks you down the stairs or whatever, ha ha, he's smiling. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, Clouseau wasn't smiling. He was like, oh, this, I, I meant to do that. You know, it's the clumsy recovery was the goal it's of the, him. The, you know, his that imperfection. human thing that we connect to when somebody's trying so hard, you know, when they really are trying. Um, and then we forgive them their mistakes because, because we see that they want more for themselves. They're just, they're just in, imperfect. Yeah, it makes me feel like I can relate to them better because I'm I'm an imperfectionist. Yeah, because that's a goal I can reach every day. Absolutely, I'm right there with you. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and, and that makes the characters seem real and human and interesting. I will say, you said sort of a, the the general thing that's missing, um, whether it's male or female. Um, rather than missing, I would say something I'm, I'm seeing too much of is people writing movie characters. So they write an action hero, and he sounds and looks exactly like an action hero that we have seen a million times. And the writer writes him really well, but it is not his own character. It's a movie action hero. So when people start writing movie characters, that's also a problem. Archetypes. And giving them archetypal 
dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Because they think they'll like this and they'll buy it because they saw him say this. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with skewing an archetype or, or uh, experimenting How, a great example with of an skewing? archetype. Give me a great skewed one so we have an example. Oh, boy, an example. An example, you say. Yes. Thanks a lot. An example. <laughs> An example. Well, we just watched um, the Grand, Buda- Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes. Right? And, you know, this may be one that I think would divide people, but I enjoyed Ray Fine's character a lot because he was that archetype of sort of the dandy, right? But he was also the dandy who uh, <laughs> slept with old ladies and um, could you know, uh, punch his way out of something, um, who befriended like the creepiest guys in jail, (laughs) you know, it wasn't all, he would just take that and skew it, you know, but through the whole thing also had this very proper etiquette, you know, and, uh, had to have his perfume. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But when he didn't get his perfume, he was, he was, he was really, really mad about it. You know, it was OCD about stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's a, an interesting archetype that, that they just played with. Yeah. And, and you see so many of the bad examples of them trying to give the hero something quirky. I know he plays the cello and stays up all night. Right. And he's, and he likes opera. He's the bad guy that cries at opera. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. It shows that he's got a soul to... Come on, another bad guy that can quote Shakespeare? Right. And the thing is, how does that connect with the story? They bail. It doesn't. They bail. They always bail. So, but what if, (laughs) but what if that knowledge of Shakespeare was something that actually helped him with the story choices he made? You know, uh... Uh, Macbeth does this, Hamlet does that, you know, so it, it helps him with story or maybe he can recall, you know, a great line just when he needs it as far as fixing something fine, then it integrates into the story. But I agree with you. Just, just standard. Yes. And he can do this does not make us love him. It just feels like, you know, a device. Yeah. You're out of ideas. It was 4 a.m. And I'm giving him a cello. (laughs) Gotta get some sleep. (laughs) It's interesting what you do with a series when you've been on a few seasons and you're smashing your head against the wall. What can I give them to do that we haven't seen already? Now, did- Gotta make another season. What are we gonna do? How do you set a guy up? Be a season guy, maybe gotta get rid of him at the end of the season. What are you gonna do with like, what is that? A se- how do you think in a season's curve? I don't know. Well for for me I guess I have to come from an audience point of view. Um I love it when well, TV can do different things, right? TV can suddenly switch up how they tell the story, like going from lost, from flashbacks to flash forwards. Okay, so suddenly point of view is completely changed. Okay, that, that's going to commit me. Mm-hmm. But also look at Breaking Bad and what they kept doing with that character um, with saying, okay, if this is a guy who's getting power hungry, how do we change it up so that now he's at a completely new level of it. It's not him just wanting the same thing. Right. It's now he wants to actually fight off the gang that he's in competition with. You know, it's, it's every season looking at that arc of the character and going, we're going to go to a new stage and a new stage and a new stage. And I think that's what makes it fresh. And it's terrifying at the same time because you're going, does this new stage push it to the end? And if it's not the end, how do we explain why that wasn't the end? Yeah. How do we get back out and make season nine, season 10, when that, everything looks like a pinnacle? 
uh, big thing, and you got to trick it. It's like that you can get close to kiss. Don't kiss. Don't oh. you dare kiss. I, I'm You'll with you. ruin everything does, if you kiss. It, like that's the other thing, right? Sometimes, okay, new stage of relationship. Oh, I know they'll get married. And every time I think a comedy actually does that. Ugh. Kills it. It does. It does. The I was, tension's gone, and the tension was like half the gag, God, right? God, God, Pat, how invested were we in Pam and Jim? It was like an unhealthy <laughs> investment, wasn't it? We were very invested in Pam and Jim and Ross and Rachel and yeah. Sam and Diane. But and- then they get together, and you're just like, oh, never mind. I know. Forget it. It, it did lose a little bit when Pam and Jim got Married. It did. So you have to get into that next stage, but maybe with comedy, I don't know, something about actually getting them together. Now there's no want anymore. Yeah, it was right? different when it's Mulder and Scully. Mm. They can't kiss, and they go, oh, now you're a couple. And so it makes it really weird for you to. She, she never acknowledges when something weird's happening, and you know, it's like he's the weird. I think that would all blend, and you'd lose a lot of why they're the separate opposing forces. Right, right. Because, you know, marriage fixes all that opposing forces stuff. (laughs) I I got got no comment. I got my husband (laughs) in me. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I mean, these are the things that if if you're thinking about making a series and making, you know, laying it out, they're going to ask you, where you see the seasons? What's the season's curves? You got to make out a little thing of where you see it going, the season to season to season. You got to figure out who you added for people to make that work and all that. And and it's your idea has to keep having legs in terms of being able to mine the idea. One thing that was interesting with, with what we did with your project was, without giving anything away, I think the very first draft sealed it with a joke. You know, sealed it with, oh, and it's not what you thought. But what we talked about was, well, what if it is what you think? You have a whole series that you can pull out of this reality you came up with. Right. It doesn't have to be not that reality, you know? It's, right. it, that's the difference between a sketch and a TV show. You right. Know? You commit to the reality and everybody's literally on board with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And uh, I'm very grateful for all the help you've given me. And uh, I'm grateful to know you. And I'm grateful that you've been on Overview. Thank and I, you. Guys, I want to tell you again how you can find Pilar Alessandro. <laughs> and that is uh, on the page podcast. And The Coffee Break Screenwriter is a wonderful book. Get it. And, uh, <laughs> and also uh, go on to www.onthepage.tv. Excellent. Thank you. And, and learn about how you can get into one of these classes here and do yourself the favor. And so, guys, I want to thank you very much. I want to thank both you, Pilar, and Pat Francis for being on Overview. And, guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Thanks.